This is Beth Butler, and thank you for listening to From the Ground Up, where we chat with people in and around the real estate industry. I have been in the real estate business for 35 years, and much of my experience has been about building the business from the ground up. And I'm pleased to share some of the people who I've met along the way and who have helped me build in this podcast. Thanks for tuning in to listen to Leonard Steinberg. He's amazing. And again, with all of our COVID craziness, the quality of the audio is not as good as some of the other episodes, but again, so worth the effort. Please listen in. Thank you. Today, I'm proud to announce that we have Leonard Steinberg of Compass with us on From the Ground Up. Here's a little bit about Leonard. Leonard Steinberg started a firestorm in the real estate profession when he joined the small startup technology-focused New York-based brokerage Urban Compass as president in mid-2014 after 17 years at both Corcoran and Douglas Elliman, the 50-person company backed by Goldman Sachs, Founders Fund, and a host of other private equities that have since been joined by Wellington Fund, Fidelity, Dragoneer, SoftBank Vision Fund has mushroomed in just six years to a 20,000-person nationally recognized brand simply called Compass with over 325 offices throughout the United States and $91 billion of sales volume in 2019. Compass is now the third largest privately held brokerage in the USA. Leonard has always remained in the daily brokerage part of the business and changed his title to Chief Evangelist in 2018 as the company adapted to include several regional presidents. He embodies the new breed of modern real estate professional who provides substantive knowledge about all aspects of the real estate business and full-fledged, elegant, and discreet service to sellers, developers, and buyers of New York property with over two decades of experience and several billion dollars in sales. He has worked with numerous developers and their architects, including Tadeo Ando, Annabelle Seldorf, Cook and Fox, Rogers, Dirk and Harbor, and Sir Norman Foster, to name a few, to help create and market some of Manhattan's most recognizable residential landmarks. Leonard is also the founding vice chairperson of NYRAC, an industry organization created in 2018 residential real estate agents focused on elevating the consumer experience by raising the status of the residential brokerage profession in New York City, encouraging innovation, transparency, ethics, advocacy, influence, best practices, education, collegiality, and professional networking. Thank you so much, and welcome to Front the Ground Up, Leonard Steinberg. Hello, how are you, Beth? I'm very well. Thank you again for joining us today. I'm so pleased to have you on. Thank you. Tell me, Leonard, let's go back a bit and tell me how you got started in the real estate business. Well, that's going back a little far. Um, <laughs> I started over 22 years ago. Um, I had failed at multiple careers. Um, I had been in the fashion industry for a decade and then had a midlife crisis at the age of 30, tried my hand at music and was a total disaster. Um, my uh, musical skills are mediocre at best. And um, I thought, you know what, I'd always had a fascination with real estate. And um, my real estate career could have started around the age of six, actually, when as a kid, I drew a for sale sign, stuck it up on my parents' home, and the neighbors came running over to buy the house. 
but I put that on pause between the ages of six and 30. And then when I was 31, I um, entered the real estate sphere, um, starting out from scratch, really. I thought I would just learn it for a few months and then continue doing what I'd done before, which was I'd done a little bit of um, development already um, while I was in fashion. And I entered the real estate uh, brokerage business, and I've been in there ever since. And what led you to Compass? Oh, all roads lead to Compass sooner or later. Um, <laughs> no, I actually met Robert Refkin in December of 2013. A consultant had connected me and four other agents to Robert to meet at the Soho Grand Hotel to um, tell him or you know, discuss with him what we felt the future of brokerage could be. Um, at the time, the company was known as Urban Compass, and it was a algorithm-driven, rental-focused company where they had um, salaried neighborhood specialists who were connected to people who had connected to p apartments via an algorithm. And Robert had recognized um, quickly, which I thought was admirable, that the business model was failing and that he had to reach out to the more traditional model of real estate brokerage to understand how maybe that could be molded and improved and impacted by technology. And um, a month later in January, he invited me for breakfast. And I, I've never ever passed out on an I've never passed on an invitation for food. <laughs> so of course I went, met with um, Robert and um, some other executives from the company. And it was interesting because at the time. Compass was a very small organization. They'd made a few waves already. It was known as Urban Compass. And I thought, as I walked away from that breakfast, why? Because I'd, you know, I'd met with the Sotheby's and the Christie's and all the other brokerages um, before. You know, Everyone's always trying to recruit everyone. And um, I thought, what is it about this little nothing company that fascinates me so much? And what is it that I feel I could maybe bring to the table that could be impacted impactful in creating something very meaningful and something my gut said to me if you don't pursue this and really explore this closer you're going to regret it and I've often relied on my um, gut instinct and when I've ignored it I've suffered and when I've listened to it I've benefited by it so I listened to this time and I um, met several times further than with uh, Robert and the team and by June of 2014 I joined which was Urban Compass at the time we were 50 people and um, just getting started in the resale business, in new development, in uh, sales and rentals, all of that was just beginning in the more traditional uh, model of real estate, but heavily infused with technology. So the, the vast majority of people working at the time, the vast majority of the 50 people were engineers and uh, product creators and creative people and management and legal, but um, I came in as like the old guy who knew the traditional real estate model, but who also had very big dreams about what brokerage could be, not only from the tech perspective, which I had seen impacting the markets across the board in other industries dramatically. I felt uh, real estate was a little backwards back then and could do with a lot more um, help from the, the tech world. Uh, but I also felt that there was an extraordinary opportunity for a company whose culture promoted a level of professionalism and ethics and kindness and empathy and collaborativeness that would be something very appealing to a wide group of agents who I knew existed around the country and around the world. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking back. It's funny. 
I met with you just probably a year after you'd been with the company when I came to interview with Compass myself and you sharing some of those same things. I remember asking you about the technology because, of course, that's what I was curious about, right? I understood the real estate brokerage part of it, but really tell me about the technology. And you said the technology gave you more time in a day. And you said one of the things that you were able to do with this newfound time was do this daily email, which has now become your daily contemplation. So honestly, I, I still think about this every day when I get this. I'm like, how does Letter do this? I mean, what's your inspiration? And now, and it's grown to a huge audience. So talk about this. This is just for everybody that's listening that doesn't buy whatever stroke of of misfortune, you're not getting this every day. I will put this subscription link in the show notes. But Leonard sends out his daily contemplation, which has a selection of a, a, a few different things. It spotlights some of the Compass properties. It talks about what's going on in the predominantly financial world in general. And then Leonard closes with his thoughts for the day. And some of them are just what he was talking about, how he creates that culture, how he drives ethics. So I'm going to let you take it from here, Leonard, and I've teed you up. Tell us more about the daily contemplations. Well, this contemplation, which is basically a daily morning memo, I actually write starting around 5.30 in the morning every morning. And it started out from almost day one where I felt the need to communicate to the company. And I couldn't do it one-on-one -on -one because you can't do one-on-one -on -one 50 people every, every day. It's just impossible. But what I wanted to do was instill and share my knowledge of the industry and my vision of a great real estate culture and uh, what I do on a daily basis in real estate brokerage to the entire company. Because a lot of the people in the company had come from outside of the brokerage world and wanted to understand my perspective. So, of course, I shared it in meetings and all sorts of things. But I felt if I would share my knowledge and perspective on a daily basis, 365 days a year, that over time would really... Um, I hate to say it, subliminally indoctrinate people as to what's going on in my head and what I know and what I've experienced. Um, as the company started to grow, it also became an important vehicle to communicate insights about the markets that were happening daily, not purely real estate, but semi-real estate related, because I think real estate is one important component of a much bigger picture. And I felt that sharing um, uh, facts and data points about these big picture um, uh, facts that were coming out on a daily basis would not only educate agents, many of whom know what I'm talking about already, but also provide everyone with um, with uh, material and with, uh, with um, assets to share with their clientele and also to speak to their clientele with information that was much beyond the traditional, do you want to buy or do you want to sell or just pricing? Um, so that was another component. And then the third component was, I wanted to be sure as we grew that everyone around the country in the Compass family felt a connection to the company every morning. Because I think it's important, we often exist in this business in a very lonely space where Many of us are driving around in a car every day and barely see our colleagues or our company. A lot of people outside of the New York and California and maybe Florida markets feel like, oh, everything's happening in New York and California and we don't count. And that's so not true. So I really wanted everyone in the, com in the company culturally to feel connected. 
And as importantly, I wanted to showcase to everyone what we are selling for what and by whom around the country, because we're in so many markets and all these markets are so hyper-localized. What happens in Chelsea, Manhattan is completely different to what happens in Newport Beach, California, or in Coconut Grove, Florida. So everyone has to understand that even within our cities, there are these multiple hyper-localized areas that sell very different products, very differently by different agents, and oftentimes with a different language and a different style and different things are you know important to different people. And that is messaged every single day. So if we're showing a group of listings and we're doing it 365 days a year, all of a sudden over 2,000 properties are being exposed to the Compass family and beyond. And I think that has tremendous value in educating people to what is selling for what, what is happening in the world as it relates to economics and the real estate world. And then thirdly, culturally, what I feel is important to the company. And I speak to a whole host of topics because I've never, ever been short of opinions. In fact, my mother used to roll her eyes and say, Leonard, you're exhausting. You have an answer for everything. (laughs) And we're glad you do. How many people are you sending contemplations to every day now? Do you know? It goes to well in excess, I think, of 25,000, and it keeps growing because just recently we opened it up to people outside of the Compass family because I had learned that a lot of agents and staff were sending the uh, email and forwarding it to people in their sphere, and now some have been invited to join in. And I love that we share that because I do think we're all in a world where the more we share, the more we all benefit. So it's wonderful to have this very big audience. It's a little exhausting at times because the pressure to produce every day is intense. And I try and make it as interesting as possible every day. I try to avoid politics as much as I possibly can because I don't want it to become a political forum that makes anyone feel uncomfortable or alienated. I think we should always be a company whose culture welcomes differing opinions, different points of view, And I celebrate that, and I think we should all celebrate that. As long as there's an honest, open debate and discussion around all those things, I'm very happy. Yeah, you do a great job, and I thank you. Every time I feel like I've got too much to do in a day or I'm feeling overwhelmed with a long list and just feel like I'm starting to hyperventilate because I can't get it all done, (laughs) my my mantra is, what would Leonard do? What would Leonard do? Because oh, the no, it's true. Because the discipline that it takes to be able to write that every single day, 365 days a year is inspirational, right? Just that you've got to be on top of your time. You've got to know what to do with it when you have it. It just the outright discipline of sitting down and writing that every single day is inspirational. And I'm sure it's not just to me, to everybody, but it really says nobody's overwhelmed. If Leonard can write that every day, my day is much more manageable. Well, it's also a great gift to me, Beth, because I have to tell you what, I suffer from ADD. And the fact that I'm forced to do this every single morning, not only is a discipline that's healthy for my brain, but it also forces me not just to read things, but to read them and write them down. And when you read something and write it down, you really remember it. So I'm also learning from all the properties I'm seeing, and I'm also learning with all the little factoids I provide. 
but I do think it's an amazing content creator for agents to source from this year without having to do all the research. And my old saying is time is the last luxury. And the more we can save everyone time, the better we will all be at what we do, the more time we'll have to do it. And the more time we'll also have to breathe and relax and recover from the craziness of real estate brokerage. It's certainly true. So in addition to doing the contemplation, you also have a very successful real estate team by anybody's definition. How did it grow? How did it start? Any kind of team philosophy or pivotal moments you'd like to share? Well, the team uh, started with me on my own. Then it uh, became me desperately needing some assistance. And I actually hired a assistant that I shared with another agent. And then I realized I needed the assistant full-time. And then I realized my business grew again. So I needed a partner. And then once we had the partner, we got another uh, team member and then it joined, you know, it grew over the years. I did not form a team within a matter of weeks. I've always felt that whoever joins, these are my rules related to the team. Whoever joins my team is someone I would be comfortable sending to a dinner with one of my clients and not worrying or feeling embarrassed. <laughs> That's number one. Number two, if they don't have the um, ethics and principles and honesty that I believe in, they won't last long. Sometimes you never know these things up front. Sometimes you learn the hard way. But I set very high standards as it relates to that. I'm not one of these pushers who say you have to produce $50 million worth of sales by the end of the year or else you're toast. I'm not like that at all. And my team is structured very differently to a lot of other teams. I have a team that is a four-person core team where myself, um, Hervé, Callie, and Amy handle all the showings, marketing, um, liaison with our clientele, legal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other team members, of which there are eight, exist under my umbrella and are beneficiaries of all my marketing um, assets and tools. And uh, they help me when I need their help. I help them when uh, they need my help. But they really are, you know, under an umbrella. They aren't daily workers, really, on my specific um, projects. But um, we work very cohesively together. And I, you know, one of the mantras I keep repeating is, ask not what your team can do for you. Ask what your you can do for your team. <laughs> and I think um, that's really, really important because uh, working together is so much more fun. I also think if you need to take a vacation, you don't have to worry about your business. If for some reason you're sick, you know there's someone taking care of things for you. Um, brokerage today is very different to what it was 10, even five years ago. And the volume of work that is required to market a, prop a property effectively, and we often deal with some very high-priced properties, even the lower-priced properties, all of them require a lot of work. And that requires a lot of hands and feet and mouths and brains and eyes and ears to get all the work done. It's a lot of work. So many teams that started in New York now, the trend is they're going beyond New York. They're going national or they're opening other markets. Do you have any plans to expand beyond New York? Well, we are mostly focused on the New York area. So we do Manhattan and Brooklyn. And I have a component in the Westchester region because it's within an hour of Manhattan and this crossover there. But my feeling is that I trust the Compass network of agents so you know, dramatically. I, I really believe in the agents of Compass so that when I refer some business to an agent in Dallas or Nashville or Santa Barbara or Miami, I feel so confident 
that they are going to do an extraordinary job that I don't feel I need to create that team. Now, I think some teams are going to be different and will want to be in multiple locations, but I've never, you know, dreamed of creating a brokerage within a brokerage. That's never been my um, goal in life. I'd, I'd much rather boost all the agents and teams at Compass on, uh, you know, because I'm coming at it from a different point of view. Yeah, I like that. You are in New York, arguably so far the most COVID impacted city in the United States. How has the residential real estate market been impacted overall? Well, I think it's too early to tell. I think New York was, uh, you know, painfully one of the first regions to get really badly impacted by this because of the travel from Europe. And a lot of the world travels via Europe to get to America via New York and New Jersey, Newark Airport. So I do think the spread had started probably in January, if not February already, and um, only was identified late in February, early March, which is such a tragedy. But, um, you know, someone always has to lead the, um, the pain, and New York often has done this. But the story of COVID hasn't been written, and you see these alarming, alarming um, rising new case rates in other parts of the country right now. So I don't think this COVID story has been written fully. I think what's important is the more cases that get identified as testing improves, um, the more the death rate will go down. More importantly, if you were to compare now to three months ago, if we could find a great series of treatments for COVID so that it didn't become deadly and was more treatable like a, a, a regular flu, then you'd have a very different world. But unfortunately, New York was first because um, the travel from Europe was not cut off soon enough. And um, no one who was coming in was being tested, which is so remarkable to me. We knew about this in January already. So we had two full months to prepare for this year. And I find that the um, leadership on the federal, state, and local level failed the American taxpayer horribly. I'm absolutely appalled that our tax dollars have been so poorly uh, managed. But it is what it is, and um, now we are seeing this uh, you know, pretty dramatic growth in areas, and hopefully that can be curtailed. But real estate-wise, New York City basically shut down and for three months, showings were not allowed. We just started showings a few days ago, just before the July 4th weekend. So it's very early to be able to tell. I do think, however, that um, the protests that happened in the last few weeks were not damaging to New York because I think protesting is a celebration of the American dream that we all have a right to loudly proclaim our concerns on the public square. I think that's wonderful. But I do think there was a criminal element that seeped in and took advantage of very well-intentioned people that has been very unfair to cities around the um, country and around the um, world, so that you had the looting and the violence that definitely put a damper on top of COVID-19. And I think it's going to take a little bit of time for everyone to, you know, breathe through this and, you know, come back saying, OK, you know, all be fine. I do think New York City desperately needs new leadership. I think our mayor has been um, awful, just terrible. I think our mayor is a, an abject failure. And I think um, the minute a great new candidate for the mayor is announced, I think you'll have a whole new world in New York City, as well as new treatments and hopefully a vaccine eventually for COVID-19. But um, the demand for New York is extraordinary. I think the, uh, the, the narrative that everyone's 
leaving New York is true only because a lot of people left New York for their weekend homes, myself included. So thousands of people in New York City left for their weekend homes or second homes or rented second homes. I do think it accelerated a group of people who had been contemplating moving to the suburbs. I do think that group certainly accelerated their plans. And I will tell you, our offices in New Jersey, Westchester, upstate New York, Connecticut are on fire. (laughs) The volume of transactions they've experienced is astounding. Um, The pricing astounding. And um, I've seen bidding wars there for $500,000 over ask, not on $20 million properties. So there is a group of buyers who are buying now second and third homes within an hour to two hours of Manhattan. I also think the Hamptons has had an extraordinary volume of activity. And that's oftentimes three to four hours travel time, unless you're taking a helicopter, which is a lot quicker. Um, but I do think a lot of um, New Yorkers um, that we deal with at Compass, for, for the most part, are wealthier. And um, obviously, there's multiple price points, and we deal with all price points. But a big chunk of them are wealthier pe- people who can afford second homes. And um, what we are finding is that, I think what the consumer is finding as well, is that a second home in New York is not necessarily a $20 million home in the Hamptons. You can get a $300,000 weekend home in the Hudson Valley, upstate New York. That's beautiful and charming. And you can get an $800,000 or $2 million property in Westchester County, which looks like it's 20 hours from Manhattan, and yet it's one hour's drive. And in New Jersey, there are amazing properties on the water or in the countryside, all within an hour to two hours of Manhattan and less, and they aren't $20 million. So... You know, I do think some people might say, I'm not going to buy a $10 million apartment in New York City. I'll buy a $7 or $8 million apartment and then have a $2 million property outside. And that translates to all different price levels as well. So I think there is a new awareness of the exquisite beauty within a two to three hour radius of New York City that a lot of people hadn't discovered or fully um, you know, experienced that they have for the last three months. And that's a very exciting new audience. I do think New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Illinois, California, a lot of these states have been beaten up by the uh, limitation of the SALT tax deduction. And I've heard that might be repealed, which I think would be very, very impactful. It's good to hear that Connecticut, New Jersey, that these home values are are on the rise again because they, they did get pretty hard hit by the SALT tax from what I understand. So I guess my yes. question to you is with all of this, are you seeing inventory increase in the Manhattan market because people are leaving or it's more second and third home? So I would think if it's mostly people leaving, like the headlines would have you believe, that the inventory would start to inch up. Are you seeing that at all? Well, the press always loves a scandalous and salacious <laughs> because if, if you don't do that, I'm, I'm, it's a sad story, but if you don't do that, People don't read it. I know. And people are much more attracted to bad news than good news. So, um, of course, it's a huge story because it's so easy to say, everyone's leaving New York City. Well, a lot of people left New York City because they didn't want to be in New York City during the lockdown. And they had the option not to be. And they had the wealth capacity not to be either. So I think the story has been written the way a lot of times people write about that sale that happened at 50% off. 
Meanwhile, that $50 million property should never have been priced at $50 million. And the fact that it's sold for $25 million makes for a great 50% of headline, but it's not reality. So I do think the last three months having a lockdown has meant a lot of New Yorkers have left to go and either rent somewhere or live somewhere or buy somewhere else until they come back to Manhattan. There is a group of people who have left for sure because they wanted more space and were planning to move to the suburbs anyway. And there is a small group for sure who have decided I want to live in Florida or Texas or Aspen or California. Lots of crossover between California and New York. And that has always been the case. But I think it's way too early to tell. And I do think, you know, the Everything is so crazy right now because the headline was today, oh my goodness, the equity markets had their biggest increase in 30 years. Well, yes, of course they did because they had the biggest dip in 30 years too. So I think what we're experiencing right now is an increase in inventory because most new inventory has not been brought to market for the last three months. Would you launch a uh, beautiful property into the marketplace in the middle of a pandemic lockdown? No. So of course, you're going to have not only buyer buildup, but you also have pent up demand. And then you also have pent up listings awaiting to be listed. So I do think uh, what happened in March of this year was there was a pause button that was hit. And of course, from that moment on, you saw all kinds of data and figures plummeting. And now you're going to see all kinds of figures soaring and unfortunately, the press never gives context. And there are a lot of data aficionados out there who uh, speak to all kinds of data and salacious headlines, but never provide context. And I think that's a terrible disservice to the consumer because it induces either fear, which is the least of the problems. The worst is when it, induce, when it um, provides a false narrative or a false perspective that uh, compels people to make decisions that are unwise. Yeah, I agree. It just, I think everybody that's at least boots on the ground in the business is really just trying to figure out what the landscape is beyond today, right? So in Florida, we did see um, an influx of buyers as soon as we were able to reopen. I think some of that was pent up demand from before, right? We kind of finished our season, which was unusually cut off and disturbed. But it also, a lot of our traffic in some of our new developments, which are particularly attractive to the New York second home buyer, the traffic sort of dropped off a cliff as well as soon as the travel restrictions were put in place. So I feel like some of that was stopped with the travel restriction now that South Florida in particular is the new epicenter of the virus. So it'll just be interesting to see where that's going long-term, but I've been trying to, and I'm sure you have too, just talk to a lot of different people out there and gather what they're seeing to try and make sense of where we think this market is going to go. So with that in mind, what are the observations you've been seeing in the few, in the limited time you've kind of been back in the market? I think it's way too early to tell, and I'll compare it to the following. Imagine you just had the craziest hurricane blow through Miami, and it did extraordinary damage, and there were still palm fronds on the ground, and there were still areas that were flooded. I think it's too early to tell at that point how Miami is going to look in the future. I think the same is true in California. 
imagine this was a wildfire. Right now, we would be at the stage where the wildfire was for the most part contained, but there were still little wildfires burning here and then. People were still putting them out. Still too early to figure out, are people going to move back into this wildfire territory or into this hurricane land or into Dallas where there were tornadoes that ripped through the most expensive real estate in the world in Dallas? So I think it's just way too early at this juncture to know the future, but I would say the following. Cities like Miami and New York and London and Los Angeles and San Francisco and Chicago. I mean, these are amazing cities that are just expanding and flourishing and growing and have rich culture and traditions and extraordinary amenities and people and restaurants and a whole host of things that just feed off one another. To build any one of the cities I just described from scratch takes not 10 years or 20 years or 50 50 years or 100 years, it takes many, many, many more years than that and extraordinary money. So you have uh, almost certainty that all these cities have the capacity to recover from their, um, you know, their events. And I do believe New York, just as Miami and all other cities in America that have gone through any kind of um, uh, tragedy like this here will come back. It's just how long will it take? It's not an if, it's just a when. I think most importantly, as we've seen in companies, companies are not uh, ethereal entities. They are a gathering of people. The same is true with cities and towns. It's the people and the will of the people and the energy, innovation, creativity, and desire for people to recover, rebuild, and uh, soar. That is what's going to be that uh, which drives New York City, Miami, L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, New York, Aspen, everyone, all of these cities, London, Paris, all of them, they will all come back because they have extraordinary people. They're amazing people in your city, just the same way they're amazing people in New York City. I have extraordinary confidence in the people of New York City. Their grit, determination and creativity already when I walk down the streets. The restaurants are just reopening and they've reclaimed parts of the street in front of them to create these most adorable, creative, wonderful outdoor dining moments. Amazing. People adapt incredibly quickly. But I do think when you have fires still burning, it's very early to know the future. Because I have to tell you what, I had some clients who said, we're racing down to Florida, we're going to rent for a year and then we might come back to New York and then your cases spiked in Florida and they're like, we're not going to Florida. Florida is the new center. <laughs> you know, people get a bit crazy and rightfully so. These are stressful times. Everyone wants to protect their, um, you know, their nest. They want to protect themselves. They want to be healthy. They want to be safe. And I think when a fire is burning, people overreact sometimes, uh, which is very human. Yeah, I agree. It'll be interesting to see where all this goes. In the long term, obviously, I think recovery will happen in all these places. It's just dealing with the short term. And I think that um, also when it comes to real estate, we have a lot of people that are opportunistic, right? We've gone through cycles, whether it was the real estate recession, 9-11, whatever, where 
we do create opportunities for investors or people that have a little extra cash in their pocket to be able to make some money in real estate. And so I feel like there's a lot of those people standing on the sidelines waiting to see when the opportunity, if the opportunity arises for them to kind of jump in and get a deal or what should they buy. And that's a lot of the conversations I'm having, especially in new development. I know you do a lot of new development work. What are you seeing in New York? Well, we definitely have seen the vulture buyers come out in mass. And I say the word en masse as a positive because I think it is the best thing for the value of real estate that they are coming out in, in droves. There are a lot of people with enormous reserves of capital who are very interested in buying up real estate in New York City. Of course, all of them want a huge discount and all of them are being very disappointed. In fact, some have even gone on national television proclaiming the demise of the, you know, the real estate markets in New York and everything's going down. And I have to wonder, are they doing that because they believe it or they're doing it in the hopes that someone's going to accept their low offer on what they're bidding on? <laughs> because I do think very wealthy vulture investors love a bargain. And in the last recession, I mean, billionaires were created because of the bargains they bought in that recession. I think this round is very different because the volume of capital sitting on the sidelines right now to buy up all of these bargains is so enormous that I feel the competition is going to drive up prices and minimize the discounts. Will there be discounts? Some will be bigger than others, and I think it will be very hyper-localized as to what they're bidding on and the quality of product they're bidding on. I think some developers will be in much worse situations than others. I think there will be opportunities in some areas or other, in, and, and not in other areas, but just like an auction house. When you have 10 bidders, the price is going to go up. When you have 50 bidders, the price is going to go way up. When you have one bidder, the price is going to be low. The other factor that at least will impact a lot of the markets, I'm not so sure in New York, I guess maybe the 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 eviction and foreclosure restrictions, you know, where they're unable to proceed. Ours in Florida here this morning, it just came out that it's been extended now until August 1st. So a lot of what I'm hearing is, People are waiting to see what kind of impact that has, right? Because that might create in some of the, there may be more, I don't think anybody has a really good handle on what percentage of people aren't paying their mortgage or aren't paying their rent and what kind of opportunity that would create in the next 30 to 60 days. So again, I think that's just another one of those plus unemployment and all the other economic factors. There's so many things that come to bear here. It's, it's just we've got to wait. Like you said, we've just got to wait and see how some of these factors play out, how some of these little fires go out or flame up, as you put it. Yes. And I think the other thing we have to remember is people often say, well, the law was changed and now it's this year and I'm done. And I'm like, you know what? Laws change all the time. You have a new administration come in and all of a sudden you have a new law. You have a new mayor come in and you have a new law, a new governor and you have new laws. So laws can change all the time. I think the key is the world is currently much too much guided by extremists. There are extremists on the left and there are extremists on the right. It's either socialism or extreme capitalism. And I think the vast majority of us actually exist in the center 
where we like certain aspects of socialisms, like social security. We love social security, right? That's socialism. And we love capitalism because capitalism fuels this extraordinary country called the United States of America. So instead of us you know, fueling these extremist policies that have very short shelf lives, um, also divide the country horribly and uh, fuel extremism on the other side, we'd be much better off if we all took a much more centrist stance to being practical. Practical solutions, practical laws, practical policies work. And that is where the focus needs to be in all our towns and cities. And I urge everyone in the real estate sphere, in fact, I urge every human being to get more involved. Every American really has an obligation, in my opinion, to have their voice heard, to understand the issues at play, and to really get their voice out there to make the changes that are necessary to become more practical about everything. All this philosophical, ideological, extremist policies that I'm hearing, whether they're on the extreme left or the extreme right, usually when they get approved, have a shelf life or of a few years at best, and oftentimes do extraordinary damage and cost a fortune. We have to become more practical, just the way you and I run our lives. Yeah, I agree. It's um, I, I, I every morning or when I go and I check my social media feeds. It's, this morning is certainly no exception. I think okay, today's the last day I'm going to be on Facebook because the <laughs> the political rhetoric on both sides that are on my feed. I feel number one, I have a very balanced friend base because I get it from both sides of the extreme, but it makes me crazy. I'm like, I can't believe that this is where we are. I see the hashtag let's make America united again. And I think that's, those are good words to live by as we approach the rest of this year, we have much more in common than those things that divide us. And the quiet majority that's in the center needs to be a little bit more vocal about yes. everybody trying to be a little bit more moderate and a little bit more understanding. And like my, my rule, first of all, be nice. <laughs> Everything, only good things can, can come from being nice. If we just start with being nice, we'll, we'll get a lot further. So well, I think it translates into everything we do. It's real estate. It is life in general. It's policy. It is um, the way uh, taxes are paid you know, collected and paid. There is just so much that can be done well if it's practical and fact-based because assumption-based is useless. We do not live in the world of assumption in our day-to-day -day lives. Why do we do that with policy? That's nuts. So I do agree with you. I think there is this vast, too silent majority in the center that has allowed the extremism of our world to over overtake us. And I think... What we desperately need is the leadership that unites. And I think Robert has been so extraordinary in that regard in that his message is always one of unification. And when you unify people, you collaborate. And when you collaborate, you're putting, two, you're putting minds together to work to perfect solutions or the best solutions for everyone. And that is when society soars. But society stagnates when you're at each other's throats all the time and insults lead to no solutions ever. No, it just leads to bad feelings and, and, and alienation. Do you have any thoughts on a forecast for the rest of 2020? I think the rest of 2020 is going to be bumpy. I think 
I I gave a speech in um, Miami actually at the convention um, for my uh, fiscal outlook for 2020. Well, everything on that list was wrong except for one thing, and one thing was that we are going to be in the most politically divisive environment for the rest of 2020. That's probably going to cloud so many important things that we should be focused on that will actually lead us to some really um, bad outcomes until we have clarity for the future. But the division is very, very, very uh, damaging nationally to all of us. It's not helpful. And I think that's going to continue all the way through 2020. So the roller coaster and the unknowns around the next administration whether it's the current one or a new one, as to taxation and to regulation will be very impactful on real estate. And I think a lot of uh, bigger ticket buyers will be very concerned about that and probably won't want to make big moves until they have answers on those two things, because I think they matter. But for the most part, I would say the first half has been so exhausting and painful that the one thing we've all come out of it um, uh, in agreement on is, and this is the good thing, there is something that unites us. I think we all will agree that having a beautiful home is really, really much more valuable than we ever thought possible. And I think having a home in a wonderful community is uh, a part of life that we've probably underestimated. So I do think the first six months of this year were the ultimate public relations moment for the real estate industry. And I think a lot of people are not only going to see that it's time to get on with your life, but that this is a great time to tap into extraordinary interest rates, probably some more choice, although in some areas we have very restricted inventory, and also a potential where sellers might be more realistic about prices in areas, which I think has been a big deterrent in the past. But I do think um, we also have to watch the jobs market, and there are at least 20 factors that we have to be uh, monitoring over the next six months that will define a lot of what will be successful or won't be successful. And first and foremost is safety and health. If we don't have health and safety, we won't have a healthy or safe real estate market. So I think focusing on health and safety has to always be the priority in life and in our markets in general. Yeah, I agree. Home has become very important again. And I think it's it, it comes from like, this is one of those silver linings, right? Everybody spending time at home made people really realize how special a place home can be, as opposed to getting up in the morning, running out, coming home at night, and it's just a place to sleep. It's really become about living in your home again, which I've enjoyed. I know you have. I've been watching you on Instagram. It's really <laughs> nice to be able to enjoy your home. So I think that is a yes. positive thing. And for many people that didn't enjoy their experience, they're looking to create that experience by finding a new place. I also think deprivation fuels appreciation. And being in my weekend home all week long and all weekend takes a little bit away from the appreciation I have for it when I'm in the city. And I look so forward to being at the house. And then when I'm at the house after the end of the weekend, I am so looking forward to the energy and vibrance of New York City that it almost is painful by the end of the week. And it's like, get me out of here. I'm ready for my city fix. Um, so I do think um, we uh, have to be careful as well that life is, you know, there's work in life as well. 
But I think when you come home, I've always said home should be your hug at the end of the day. It shouldn't be this cave that you crawl into because it's uncomfortable. And I think um, people have really had a really long time to look closely at their home to understand not only its aesthetic appeal, but its functionality as well. And from that, we will learn really very important lessons that will have long-term value. I agree. Thank you, Leonard. We're going to move into the lightning round now. This podcast is called From the Ground Up. So we have a quick lightning round of questions so that everybody out there can learn more about you and how you grew from the ground up. You ready? I'm ready. Where were you born? Cape Town, South Africa. Birth order. I'm the youngest in the family, but I only have a brother who's three years older. What's your academic background? I studied fashion. Who was your best teacher? Henry Simmons, my art teacher, who is living in New, uh, New Zealand right now. What was your first job in life? Not necessarily once you finished your education, but what was your first job? My first job was working at my dad's business on a Saturday, helping. What, what did your dad do? My dad owned a wholesaling um, firm that sold anything and everything under the sun, all under one roof. I think he had several thousand different products from paper clips to sunglasses to jewelry to toys to uh, padlocks, para- like paraffin lamps. I mean, <laughs> the variety is exhausting. So, so like Amazon. <laughs> he was Am- the Amazon. Amazon. There's Amazon.com and my dad's company was Amazon.wrong. <laughs> but you helped out on Saturday. Who has been your best mentor? My best mentor, I was very fortunate in fashion, was um, Perry, Bill Perry Esping, who was one of the founders of First Data Resources, which is one of the largest uh, global corporations that processes um, uh, uh, credit cards. Interesting. Interesting. And your current familial status? I am with my partner, Tom, and we've been together for eight years this September. Congratulations. Where do you live and what do you like best about your home? I live in Greenwich Village, and I love it predominantly because it's in a village that really feels like a village in the middle of the greatest city on earth. But I also love it because I was involved in the design and creation of this building starting over 10 years ago. And I was fortunate enough to be able to buy one of the apartments in the building. That's wonderful. And then you have a you have a second home. Tell us about that as well. I have a second home about an hour's drive outside of Manhattan in an area called Wakabok, which is in Westchester County. And it sits on a little lake. And we built the house about two years ago, and I just love it. It's like my weekend hug. I have a weekday hug, and I have a weekend hug. Very lucky. I'm very spoiled. And when you can travel, what's your favorite vacation spot? I have two vacation spots that I'm in love with, and I alternate from year to year. One is in the south of France. I love um, the south of France, Antibes, uh, Saint-Jean-Cap-Ferrat, Provence, and then I love Capri and Rome. I think I'll agree with you there. What's your morning routine? (laughs) Besides writing contemplations, what's your morning routine? Morning routine is up around 5.30. Joan sits on my lap while I type away at my computer, checking email first, then reading a lot, and then writing. Um, Then I have a workout, and then the day gets started around, I shower and shave within 
15 minutes. It takes very little to look this extraordinarily below <laughs> average. And I, um, <laughs> I get dressed and I'm ready to run somewhere around 8.30 in the morning. But I keep working all the way through all of that, including the gym. And I, um, then every day is completely different. Every day varies dramatically and moves around all day long, well into the evening. I'm home usually by 7 p.m. And I am militant about being asleep by 10 p.m. Well, you get up at 5.30. Got to get the good night's sleep. Uh, what do you consider your, yes. biggest fail- your biggest failure and your best success? Oh, my biggest failure. Oh, are you kidding me? I'm a Jewish kid. I have a long list of failures <laughs> and regrets. Are you kidding me? The list goes on and on and on and on. Look, the good thing is I have, uh, I call it selective Alzheimer's. I fail at so many things, but thankfully I forget very quickly. So I, I do regret having um, not gotten a law degree because I think that would have been an amazing asset to have in life. And I do regret not having studied my music further to be able to be a professional musician because I would have loved that. And my biggest regret by far is not taking my dad's advice when he said, why why don't you just become an artist and live off inheritance? And my answer to that was, I have much, much too elegant tastes to live off the inheritance you're providing. Do you have any aspirational goals? I always have aspirational goals, but my greatest aspiration always is to have a week where I can have breakfast on the terrace of the Hotel du Cap overlooking the Mediterranean, eating a fabulous pan au chocolat with an outstanding cappuccino and a physical newspaper. That to me is heaven. Oh my gosh, you took me there. <laughs> I closed my eyes and I went. Thank you. That's a fabulous, <laughs> that's a fabulous, that was a treat for the afternoon. What's been your favorite part of quarantine? My favorite part of quarantine has been the ability to have a silence in my world. Um, not all the time because I've been very busy, but that silence that allows me to really think. And I don't think we ever take enough time to sit and think. And I've thought of so many things and it's put so many things into perspective and it's helped me understand so much more about who I am and where I am at this moment in my lifetime. And I think uh, the, the entire experience has given me a long, long, long list of lessons that I think are life lessons I wish I'd learned 50 years ago. That's a good one. Okay. And finally, where can people connect with you that they're listening that want to reach out email, cell phone, Instagram? What's the best way to reach you? The best way is um, email ls at compass.com. That's the one medium I read religiously. Usually I respond very quickly or not at all because either I'm incredibly efficient or incredibly inefficient. There's nothing in between. I like that. And I found you to be almost immediately responsive. Again, gets back to that. What would Leonard do? I admire the way that you stay on top of things. You always answer me right away, even if it's something silly. And um, I just thank you for joining us today and for being an inspiration to all of us out there and wish you continued success. Thank you so much, Leonard. Thank you, Beth. It's been a pleasure.
This episode of From the Ground Up was sponsored by Feather the Nest, the crowdfunding source for all of your real estate needs. Why register for silverware when you can start your way to owning or renting your own home? Please sign up for your nest at www.featherthenest.com. A special thanks to my extraordinary producer, Sohail Fazludin, who has made this podcast possible. Mm-hmm.